welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and, well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we have Chris Slaughter on the podcast. Chris brings over a decade of experience in the lighting industry as a lighting designer, a luminaire concept designer, and now a manufacturer's rep in Denver, Colorado. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. You know, Chris, uh, we were just sitting here catching up about what's going on in the world right now, and times are far from normal, but it's great to have you in the podcast studio six feet away, and I promise you that microphone was sterilized ahead of time. So Appreciate that. You and I have been friends for a long time, but just uh, recap with me, you know, who is Chris Slaughter and what got you into architectural lighting? I got into lighting specifically in college with a couple of professors influencing me to kind of follow that path and was really fortunate to have an education standpoint that inspired me in that way. But the reason that I got into lighting at the core is that it blends a lot of things that I think are very uh, interesting to humans, which is art and science and psychology. And when you blend all those things together, it's like you can basically be interested in these topics for a long time. There's so much breadth and depth in the lighting industry to explore that I mean, you can be there for decades and, you know, a lot of people are. <laughs> I've got one decade under my yeah, belt. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and I, now that I think about it, most people I know have two, three, four. There's, I saw a headline the other day that Jack Zuckerman, he's 90 years old. The guy's been in lighting for like eight decades. Oh, man. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I will be lucky if I uh, make it eight decades. But I mean, that's where that thing comes from, where the saying is that once you're in lighting, you can't leave. And I think a lot of why you can't leave lighting is because it really is this interesting subject matter and it can manifest into so many different things, but there's so many opportunities and creative avenues. It's changed a lot in the decade that we've been in it. I think that one thing that people look at is lighting is maybe just the lights in their house or the lights that get them through the train station and and onto the car that they're trying to find. But there's a lot that goes into lighting and lighting design, as well as manufacturing and creating a product. And we might define that as holistic lighting. What does holistic lighting mean to you? You know, well, I mean, in general, when you're trying to do something well, you got to take all the aspects of the field into account. We just talked about how lighting involves psychology, it involves biology, it involves, you know, the hard sciences like physics and material science and manufacturing practices, but, you know, it's also the art aspect of it. So when you're doing a holistic lighting application, lighting design, or lighting experience, you're looking at all those things kind of together. The terminology holistic lighting is going to mean something different for the application. For instance, I can think of art installations, you know, all over the world that kind of have like lighting as the thematic, you know, maybe it's an experiential kind of thing, or maybe it's something where it's just a visual kind of movie. I mean, like Disney and uh, a whole bunch of other artists are going to implement aspects which use light as the medium for the experience, generally called an art installation or, or probably goes by a bunch of other names as well. You know, the holistic sense of it is how do you bring all that control of that art installation on the lighting how do you bring the different light levels that are like glare and for intensity 
you have to like mix all those things properly. And I think in the art installation, maybe you do it uh, intrinsically and kind of by experience and trial and error. You know, I think that some of the higher end people that make those art installations are going to, you know, they, they've got those rules of engagement kind of down where they know this is what we're going to go for. This is the kind of sources we're going to utilize and things like that. But for a holistic lighting experience in a home, it's going to mean something quite different, but it still has to pull on all of those aspects of the psychology and the science and the manufacturing and the art, right. To get all that stuff together. Yeah. I think what's interesting is light not only has a a design and a visual component to it, but how light is delivered really is, uh, so much something that also has to be considered. And I know that you spend quite a decent amount of time working at Acuity Brands and working on concepts with luminaires and how to design new ideas and, and deliver light, both with the LED technology that's emerged over the last 10 years, as well as trying to create new form factors that might suit the ever-evolving space requirements. Maybe the fact that ceilings don't exist in open offices for the most part anymore. Talk to me a little bit about what it's been like to look at things from the manufacturing side and have to holistically create something that can deliver light. To create something holistically that can deliver light. I think there's two ways to come at that problem. One is you can think about equipment and the flexibility of the equipment, how you utilize it. For instance, you know, you can use a pendant light in a lot of different applications, but it kind of is a very similar equipment kind of archetype, right? Or you can come at it from the application side as well. And those two things are always, they're moving targets. Somebody is going to take an application and rethink it, and they're going to use existing equipment or new equipment, or find a familiar vein of a style of equipment to change their application, like change their environment. If I want to design a space that nobody's ever designed before, I'm going to think about all the tools that I currently have, and I'm going to use them in a different way. So like that's like option one. And option two is like you can think about it from the application side. You're like, well, I'm going to optimize this application, which seems to be pretty common. An example, like you brought up an open office, right? How do we how do you like optimize a light fixture for an open office while not like pigeonholing yourself into like the same thing? Cookie cutter troffer with parabolic louvers from the 70s. Wait, that's from the 70s. Um, I still see that every day. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, that's two ways you could kind of think about that, at least how you start. So you're thinking about an application and whether or not it's going to define something as being a different space or optimizing it to replicate it and and put it in as many spaces as possible. But that's just one component of what becomes lighting in a holistic sense. We start with the design and the manufacturing, and then you move into design requirements. When you look at design requirements today, that's changed a lot. It's no longer just foot candles and lux on a surface. There's implications of light and health. What is required in terms of how much light should be on a surface or how it should be delivered? What do you think we're looking at today in 2020 in terms of how a a lighting solution, if you will, comes together? My opinion is that, you know, you look at these luminaires of 2020 as historically you may have made one thing with a couple of variations. Uh, Maybe a quintessential example is like a 3T8 parabolic. That was something that was like pretty cookie cutter. And 
and also the fluorescent limited you in a specific way to have like this much light output and so you you're kind of constrained now it's the flexibility that you have to build fixtures allows you and and almost encourages you to like build a platform and then scale that platform either up or or out to give you a bunch of different ideas as to like how you're going to create fixtures that's like what the fixtures of today are about. And I mean, you see this all over the place. You see it with acoustical treatments or it's got uplight and downlight as options. And so like the matrix of options that you get with a specific product line is just is, is you know, exploding. Yeah. And then on top of acoustics and the materials, uh, the technology that's going inside of these luminaires, it's not quite just a, a ballast with a ballast factor. What, yeah, exactly. What else is getting put into these lights today? You can still think of it as, um, you know, little siloed pieces of equipment if you want to. And that that also is part of the platform approach. For instance, if you want an integrated occupancy sensor, a, a piece of equipment that you can put inside of your, your luminaire, but you don't have to have that if the application doesn't require it or you don't want to use it in that way. But you have the platform design from the bottom up to say like, we're going to put this thing in here and this thing in here and, and some, and you gotta be careful with it too, because you start to build too many options and you've kind of like lost the original intent of the design. Cause you try to add too much scope into it. So you gotta be a little careful in the, in the design on it. You got a variety of pieces of technology from all sorts of environments, bombarding light fixtures. Um, you've got the IOT world kind of coming into light fixtures and being like, look at all this stuff you can do. You know, a lot of it has a lot of value. Some of it has questionable value. You've got other pieces of technology like you alluded to on kind of tunable white and circadian systems that are being brought in to on both on the source end of things and on the electronics you know end of things so i mean one of the things that you need on a dynamic light fixture is you need electronic communication and you need electronic feedback digital feedback and you need the ability to have fidelity of control so with all that stuff the electronics inside of it get more complicated and when you have that fidelity of control, that poses a question, but almost another challenge. Here's everything. Here's what a luminaire can do today, including deliver light into a space. How does a designer start to adapt to A, understand what the capabilities are, and then B, write a specification or a set of recommendations around how to use this to an owner? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. <laughs> or maybe we should even back up and say, how do we explain this to people and let them know light can do more than just put light in a space? I think everybody's thinking that that light fixtures can do more than just put light in a space. I think the major question is, what should they be doing? And how complicated do I need to make this? Does Do the ends justify the means, right? Like if I'm trying to make a fully connected building that is very intelligent in the sense that it can monitor a lot of pieces of information and optimize the building in, in a sense, you know, it's worth putting a bunch of stuff in there and light fixtures are a good platform for it because you kind of have to connect them up anyways. It's like a you know basic feature of interior spaces. But I think that a lot of designers are going to look at some of the tech and go like, this is not applicable for the specific application that I'm doing. And I don't really want to even think about it. And I think that's perfectly valid. And so the platform approach to designing light fixtures becomes more important so that you can either scale a fixture up or out depending on what you're trying to achieve. So if you want to integrate POE and IoT style of technology into a light fixture, you can do that, but you don't have to. To kind of get back to your question about how to, what, what does a designer do with all this information? 
stick into first principles, I think is pretty important. So what is good lighting design? What is the proper fixture for this design that I'm trying to achieve? Does this help me create the space and environment that is needed for the occupants? Because the the occupants at the end of the day is what we're doing. I mean, robots don't need light. We're not designing for robots, right? We're designing for people. And (laughs) so we have to like keep that in mind. And the end result is in line with what we're trying to achieve and the equipment supports that goal. I think that basic principles are super important when it comes to lighting design. What we've seen is a shift to technology pushing the innovation of light fixtures and luminaires as opposed to maybe that fundamental principle. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about what's worked and what's not in the innovation of luminaires over the last 10 years and where it's going in the future. Sounds good. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Be sure to check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back to the Light Pod. Chris and I were just catching up over the break a little bit more about what the evolution of the luminaire design process has been like and what that's actually turned out over the last 10 years. LEDs are here, they're sticking around, and the traditional form factors are definitely on their way out as new form factors with technology are on their way in. Chris, talk to me just a little bit more about the evolution of luminaires and what's being integrated into them today. So the evolution of you know light fixtures has again followed the trend of flexibility around LEDs. I mean, LEDs are really small, they come in a bunch of different packages sizes and different functionality. They all all LEDs have kind of the same core. They have this like little tiny die which, you know, is like a, a silicon junction that, you know, shoots photons out of it, you know. Pew pew. Pew, pew. It's just added a lot of flexibility. So yeah, traditional form factors, I, you know, I don't think they're going to die anytime soon. Like if, for instance, like a two by two is probably going to be around a long time. That's not necessarily a function of the light. It's a function of the space and, you know, like kind of how we do that kind of stuff. Certain things about down lights also have kind of uh, like a physics based thing around them that that is helpful just around humanity. Right. So, I mean, we've developed all these light fixtures kind of around us in a sense like we're you know everything's designed around humans but as the evolution of light fixtures has you know changed over time they just get better and better and more diverse like i have a theory that you know some other people share is that the world is kind of moving towards more chaos the way i interpret that in our world is that everything gets more choices everything gets more diverse and segmented and specialized you know now you've got how many different types types of tape light 10 years ago you may have had like a tape light. Now there's RGB and there's digital control and there's individual dressable LEDs. And I mean, it's and, and all, they're all on a tape, tape light. All on a it's tape in, light. It's incredible. Yeah, Absolutely I mean, incredible. You buy all that stuff from uh, and program them with an Arduino in your backyard or whatever in your garage and um, you get some pretty I, cool stuff out of it. I can't quite program lights, Chris, but I know you I can. I will teach you. Thank you. It's, it's not that hard. That's been the evolution is just to make a wider variety of fixtures and luminaires that can accomplish the stuff that we that we want to do. I talked to, to an individual a couple of weeks ago about this theory that I have is that as we 
kind of develop new stuff, initially it's always harder because humans want to do things that are different. Once you do a process, like once you create this thing once or you design this thing once, you can kind of copy and paste it, so to speak. You can do it over and over again. And every time you do it, it gets easier and you get better at it. And if it's a difficult thing to do and you get better at it every time, then it's really enjoyable. But if it's like a simple thing to do and you just have to do it repetitively, it's maybe not as enjoyable. So in in the design community, what that means is that like we want a space that is different from the last. We want an architecture that is unique and has things that nobody's ever seen before. Things move in the direction of it's more difficult to do whatever we're going to do next because it hasn't been done before. And we repeat that process over and over and over again. And this is kind of like the culmination of knowledge, if, if you want to think about it that way, is like we continue to build knowledge on how to do architecture and how to light spaces over and over and over again. First, it's difficult. Then it gets standardized. Then it's commonplace. And that cycle just repeats itself. And there's something really interesting because you mentioned just before the break, IoT, there's a new part in buildings that hasn't necessarily been taught and classically trained yet it's technology that's come online over the last 5 10 maybe 15 years and all of a sudden it's being integrated into a tried true and proven design process that's been around for maybe a hundred years what's the value in in bringing all these untraditional aspects into building and system design and also what's maybe questionable about it the platform that it's been integrated to is pretty straightforward and the value proposition is there right so if you have to run electricity to a light fixture anyways it's a good place to put in other things that need electricity you know most of this the iot stuff needs some sort of power a lot some of it can be battery operated but but now we're being forced to design with not only the forms and requirements within a space but we're being asked and told there's technology that needs to be integrated into this So it's not so much just like you can do a lighting design, but do you have to think about what it means to have Bluetooth nodes based on the appropriate spacing in your lights? Who's responsible for that? Yeah. 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 And, you know, the answer is, well, right now, the designers that have been doing it forever are responsible for it. So if a light, is it also their responsibility to make sure that that system works? Or is there a requirement that another designer has to come in And then who gets to pick, you know? That's a good question. What do you think? I don't know. I want to know what you have to say. (laughs) Both are going to happen. If you run into like a physics-based limit on something like an IoT sensor, then you're going to bend what can bend to what can't. So, for instance, if you have to have fixtures on 12-foot spacings in a grid or something like that, which is probably not the best layout, you know, not the best... uh, layout from like a aesthetic standpoint but maybe it's very functional and the the physical limits of some whatever like iot thing is in there um may mandate that right because you you kind of need this like bar of performance that you got to hit so then you kind of build bend the lighting to the will of whatever else you're doing because you can put some sort of light whether it's a high bay or a troffer or a downlight on you know a variety of spacing and try to get some sort of performance out of it you also got to think about that this whole construct of like how do we design something is a is a team oriented task the architecture needs to be a certain way the lighting needs to be a certain way the iot functionality needs to be a certain way and all these things have to kind of come together like 
that's the whole point of a design team, right? It doesn't always work out that everybody's on the same page and willing to make compromises in a design team. But that's the the fundamental idea, right? Is that you're supposed to kind of work into that stuff. So as IoT comes into fixtures more and more, there's a lot of value and it has evolved the fixture design in a pretty significant way. A quick example is like if you're going to have a wireless mesh network that controls your whole lighting system, you can't put it in a steel box because radio signals don't go through steel that well. Um, Sometimes you have interference. So you have all this other IoT stuff that's trying to sense stuff and the electronics and the driver are causing interference that doesn't allow you to accomplish that other goal as well. So IoT, when it comes into fixture design, has really complicated things. And as far as putting those into a space, there's a lot of value, I think, because some of these devices can offer a lot of functionality and a lot of increased capabilities. Is there anything that's questionable about it? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are things which do not have as strong a value proposition as others. Like, do I need asset tracking in an open office? Probably not. You know, it depends. There might be some, but is somebody worried about you know somebody taking a computer out it's possible um i could imagine like in a, a high security clearance area where you need asset tracking to make sure that nobody takes digital material hard drives computers stuff like that there ha- they have other ways of dealing with that same scenario though in a hospital asset tracking can be like super useful and, and by asset you know for, for anybody listening that you know isn't kind of familiar with that term it's like In a hospital, maybe an asset is a specific cart with like a sonogram device on it, or maybe it's a specific um, anesthesiologist cart that has like specific materials on it that the anesthesiologist is going to use in a procedure. If you want to know like where that thing is and it doesn't always get put back in the right place or how many of them are currently in function, then asset tracking can be really useful. But, you know, my opinion is that like things are getting more, you're getting more tools in your tool chest to do specific things. It increases the complexity exponentially of whatever you're doing. But once you get that back down to a manageable level of understanding where you can create some mental abstractions about the way that things work, you can now implement those with great success. You talk to how there's more options maybe more so than ever, and how that can be a good thing, but it can also be overwhelming. Like you said, there's a design team. There's a group of people that come together to figure out what the owner's needs are for the occupants in the space, to create an effective building that has a solution that will cater to the people in the building, probably currently and in the future. But there's a a component to this, which is the manufacturer and the people that are designing and building all this technology into one There's a certain responsibility that they have as well to carry on to make sure that they're not putting things out there that may lead us in the wrong direction. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So another thing about kind of like the IoT world is people tracking and sort of how you connect people into a space and how many and where are they and what are they doing. That gets even more fine parsing as to like where the value proposition is. So I think to each clientele, you have a different value there. You know, you could see where a person is in a store, like what Amazon is doing with their grocery stores. And you could say like, oh, well, this person is shopping for yogurt. Like they must like yogurt. You build this into this whole like data profile of of an individual that Amazon, you know, has on basically, you know, the majority of the U.S., you know, society. Like, well, what is this person into? What do they like? Do they have kids, et cetera? You know, should we be doing that? Uh, 
you know, I don't know. It, it depends on the client and the person and what the use case is. That's an example of where you have like person tracking that maybe it feels a little big brotherish, and you're not really sure if that's what you should be doing. But another situation of it is like, let's say you're people tracking in a a large building or an airport, and you're trying to make sure that everybody uh, is at an acceptable level of occupancy for an emergency. So you don't want too many people in too close proximity with too much gear in the way, right? You want everybody to be able to get out in an emergency in in an appropriate time. Things like people tracking can be a super strong value proposition and a really valuable asset to collect data, analyze data, and get really good scientific answers on how we can improve our architecture. So I think there's a lot of value there, but, you know, where is the value and where do we want to apply that is correct question to be asking ourselves manufacturers so to speak enabled a designer's capabilities to an extent what's the manufacturer's responsibility right now to not do something that has unintended consequences well uh, certainly like you know any entity should evaluate the consequences of doing something but that's that's across the board that's not just for a manufacturer the designer should be asking the same question and so should the owner a manufacturer in general is going to want to fulfill a client's needs and desires so if they want to buy a certain type of product that does a certain type of thing the manufacturer is going to want to comply with that I mean, I I guess the general thought process is that if someone's asking for it, there's a need, but everybody involved, including the manufacturer, should be, you know, assessing that need and saying, like, you know, is this something that we should be doing now? I'll give you like a simple example. Let's say you've got like a troffer that somebody wants to put like 10,000 lumens out of, like it's a two by four troffer and it's mounted at like 12 feet. And you're like, I'd I'd like 12, I'd like 10,000 lumens out of this thing. It's going to be pretty hard to make that fixture, you know somewhat comfortable you could probably do it but it would be pretty challenging like let's make it even more extreme they want twenty thousand lumens out of a two by four troffer there's no way you're going to make that thing comfortable so should you do it maybe gets into a little bit of a philosophical question but my opinion would be no and the reason is that you have changeover in the industry so people have to learn the same things over and over again the idea is the mentors should be passing down those you know rules of thumb and sort of previous experience and obviously you can read books and stuff like that but the manufacturers are very should be closely in tune to with what their products look like. They should be testing their products. They should be iterating on their products, and they should be able to assess things like glare and size and luminance and aesthetics and all that stuff to make sure that this is a product that doesn't kind of detract from the application. When you talk about a manufacturer and their responsibility to make sure that they execute things that maybe we could just say make sense, talk to me a little bit about what might happen if we let R&D push us too fast and we just push product to market? That's a pretty interesting question. Uh, I think the market tends to validate things pretty well. If the market's using it, then it's probably for a good example, but I think where you're going with this question is like, what are some things that like weren't fully flushed out before they before people started using them? I can think of two pretty simple examples. One of them is like very fine lines of light that put out a lot of light. So I'm thinking like an inch wide product, a kind of misnomer about trying to design general lighting with something that's only like one inch wide. You could do it, but you need a lot of it. So you could also think about this problem as surface area of emitting surface so if you have a two by four that outputs whatever amount of light 
to make it sort of visually comfortable, and I'm, I'm doing lots of hand waving here that nobody can see, right, is that you need approximately the same type of surface area of one inch, you know, wide fixture to make it as comfortable to deliver that same kind of light. Um, and I don't know if we've, as an industry, have done a good job of that. It's nice to have like really clean and sleek and small fixtures that don't detract from other aspects of the architecture in the space. But when you ask for the same amount of light out of like a four inch suspended product that you do as a one inch suspended product, you know, it's going to be very glary. And it, there's not a whole lot you can do about that besides just shooting it all straight down like a downlight, like a, you know, a narrow downlight so that you don't have any sort of high functionality. But then now somebody runs a photometric calculation on that like really narrow downlight output from that one inch, you know, suspended product. And they're like, oh, well, I have terrible uniformity. So can you make it wider? You make the distribution wider so it's not so punchy um, and then it gets glary. So it's a, you know, it's a blend of all these different aspects of, of the fixture design. And if a designer says like, oh, I need like another 200 lumens a foot out of this thing, I think it should be on the manufacturers to say, should we do this? And then even more so if they, if they're questionable about it, they should make it very clear that uh, some of the products may be borderline too bright. If we take this example of luminous surfaces and the amount of surface area that light's coming out of, it's been squeezed down. There's maybe more light coming out of it in certain applications than is comfortable or acceptable for the space. And it's not to say that things are being misused, but there's just that many more options out there. Right. And being able to interpret what product is for what application is becoming increasingly difficult, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Looking forward, there's going to be technology. We've talked a lot about IoT today. There's going to be more people in the lighting sandbox that have a say in what lights need to be in a space because light is going to do more than just light a space. What can manufacturers, what can designers, what can this community do with our knowledge of you know a 150-year-old industry to support a bigger need of a building today? and allow other technologies and other designers to to play in that sandbox, but also understand that ultimately what their needs are can't trump the needs of lighting in a space. There's a lot of smart people in this industry. A lot. I'm always pleasantly encouraged by the by the quality of people in the lighting industry. I think there's a lot of really smart people and I always enjoy listening to other people and learning from other people in that regard. So I think not concerned that we won't figure it out. Some things always take time. And one of the topics we had discussed for this podcast was like the pendulum swing. And, you know, the pendulum kind of swings back and forth a little bit and, you know, came a little bit over here and as a, you know, and uh, it's going to swing back. And, and when it swings back, we'll have better knowledge about how to implement all these things. And the information will disseminate across different team members and parties involved in a building. And, you know, we'll eventually figure it out. So we got to just start. We got to we got to start experimenting. We need to learn from what works, what doesn't work. Think about how to write more broad specs to incorporate different technologies other than light into lights. And ultimately, one foot in front of the other is what's going to lead to success. The vectors to success is not straight. If that makes sense. You can't go straight ahead right off the bat. You got to zigzag a little bit. Something that would be an interesting thought experiment for figuring out how to do this is kind of like sponsored mock-ups. 
I think that in the construction industry, we tend to be like, hey, we want to do this thing. How do we do it? And oh, it's never been done before. And then so we try it on the real thing. In most kind of at least engineering disciplines, you like try it on something that's not the real thing, you know, because if you break the real thing, that's usually bad. Not saying that that's the wrong way to do it. I just think there could be a different way to do it and it would be expensive, uh, but it could have a lot of value and it could have a lot of learning opportunities, which is to utilize a mock-up as a test case, something that's not a real hospital or a real office building. And I think if you could get a coalition together, which is always challenging to pool a bunch of money to make these mock-ups in, in the industry, then you could get a lot of really good information out of it. In general, they tend to be siloed, right? They tend to be like, this manufacturer has made a mock-up with their tech. And, you know, manufacturer B has made a, um, or company B, even like technology integrator has made a mock-up over here, come see it. But uh, it could be something that, you know, in a broader sense, like a committee, something like CIE or like ASHRAE, you know, all these are, these are committees which are trying to serve the industry as a whole, um, not just a mock-up for a specific company. You could have stuff like that where you just kind of pool a bunch of money and it's a test case and you modify it and as is and you learn from what works and doesn't. So, you know, that could be an interesting idea. It's probably pretty challenging to pull off, but... If you put your mind to it, anything can be done, Chris. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, it's been really fun catching up with you. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they have any questions or just want to chat more about this subject? You can email me. My email is chris at lightallthethings.com. Chris at lightallthethings.com. Yeah. Well, Chris. 10 points for anybody who gets the reference. I don't get the reference. (laughs) It's okay. Minus 10 points for Sam. Yeah. Thanks for chatting, Chris. It's been fun. We'll catch up with you again soon. Sounds good. See ya. Bye. Hey, it's Sam again. Real quick, if you enjoyed this episode of The Light Pod, do me a favor. Go back to the app that you listen to this on and like or subscribe it. That's the best way to never miss our next podcast, where we feature innovators, entrepreneurs, thinkers, designers, and so many more that are passionate and enthusiastic about lighting. Until next time, cheers. Thank you.